head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, the chief podcaster for the Time Variance Authority, it's Andy Greenwald! Coveted position. Coveted yeah. position. Thank yeah. you for recognizing it. What do you think the, uh, if you if you are a podcaster in the MCU universe, right? Like, they haven't cast that role yet. Um, I wow, Ed, you're right. Ed Norton could maybe come back. I saw him on Rogan a while back, and he he did a good yeah. job. Like maybe he kind of like backdoors back into the MCU as like the the podcaster character. But what do you think the ad reads would be like on in the MCU? I feel like maybe we've talked about this before, but and, and I think it's been developed multiple times over the last few years. But one of the at least just smartest concepts in Marvel Comics history was a, a comic called uh, Damage Control. Uh-huh. And they were the company that you called after Spider-Man fought the Green Goblin and oh, yeah. decimated Queens. <laughs> and so they were. it was a growth industry. Yeah, right? I mean, the, when Sokovia happened, those guys must have had incredible right. growth. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of Simply Safe type organizations would be based on much more like existential threats than yeah. like a burglar. So I feel like that would probably prop up a huge swath of the economy while the superhero battles were simultaneously decimating sure. the economy. It's actually the capitalist trap writ large. It's, it's perfect. Man, you're so smart. Uh, Andy, it's Monday. <laughs> uh, it's overcast in Los Angeles. We're here to talk a little bit about some new shows that we checked out over the weekend, namely uh, Sweet Tooth, which is airing on Netflix, and We Are Lady Parts, which is airing on Peacock. But before that, I thought we could chat a little bit about some news and notes. And I wanted to hit two things. One, I wanted to get your... Your temperature on Loki, which comes to us okay. on uh, Wednesday night on the, the Disney Plus Network. And is the reason why I wanted to ask you about this was because we got a little bit of breathing room, right? It felt like Wanda and Falcon went pretty much back to back and sucked up all the noise, all the, all the, all the sort yeah. of conversation. And it really was, I think, almost like weirdly, when I look back on it, the Mandalorian to WandaVision to. Uh, Falcon Winter Soldier run mm-hmm. was, I wouldn't say unprecedented, but 
when you take a step out of it, you're like, wow, like we were no. living, breathing, watching, talking these these three Disney Plus shows from the Star Wars and, and Marvel Universe. It was unprecedented. Yeah. I think just not in a necessarily cool way for the culture. It was good for the podcast That's what industry. I was going to ask. And I think you and I may be like, we, you know, I, I, look, we are definitely middle-aged, comic conversant, but not like, like overly... <laughs> I just threw out a damage control reference, but go on. That's the thing is like comic conversant, but I don't know. I think we we have like some trepidation about the right the monopoly of of, of our brains sure. and thoughts about about this stuff. And then we had like a two month break there where we were talking about the bureau and and mayor, and we chatted a little bit about Underground Railroad, and there was a bunch of different shows that we were talking about. I would really like to return to Underground Railroad at some point, but. Now we're we're on the precipice of this other this another run. We're gonna have mm-hmm. Loki, Black Widow, uh, and then and then you know, I was curious how you were feeling about that about returning returning to the comic comic pages. Honestly, I I, I don't mind because as people know, I, I generally like Marvel stuff and I like having it to talk about. I am potentially overly optimistic about Loki because, as we said from the moment we saw the trailer. Like if the Marvel Universe on Disney Plus is about supplying the 31 flavors for all of the types of TV fans that are out there, this one is extremely our flavor. Mm -hmm. This one strikes me as the type of hang that I'm very much looking forward to. Love a winking charismatic performance. We've got Tom Hiddleston for that. We've got Owen Wilson back. Cast looks great. The whole vibe and tone seems exactly right for me. Um, You're going to be shocked to hear that early early reactions to Loki are incredibly (laughs) positive. I was I was stunned. My I mean my my one one dude was just like not only is this show good, but Loki is now definitive definitively the greatest <laughs> villain in TV film history, which is incredible. I mean, just kudos to Kevin Feige and the whole team just on that Anthony one. Anthony Hopkins staring at the ocean from his Malibu home, throwing his <laughs> throwing his Oscars one after another. Um, yeah, I you know. It, I just, I guess I would say that I prefer this as a seasonal treat. You know what I mean? I, the, there was an element of strapping on the hard hat that I think people heard in our coverage after a while when we were, once it became clear what WandaVision was and what it was was something that we liked a lot in aspects and other aspects that we didn't love. And similarly, once it became clear what Falcon and Winter Soldier was, mining it those shows for deeper content or context, as we like to do in this podcast, became became a bit of a challenge. And I think taking a break and being like, here's a fun show. Again, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily going to, I don't know, maybe it's just a little bit of breathing room. So it doesn't feel like this has to both save and define pop culture for six weeks. Maybe it's because our lives are feeling a little bit more opened up as we're encountering them. I mean, I'd like to think that's part of the reason, even though it, it's a little bit of for uh, sure. I mean, like the, lines. the amount of hot yoga classes I've gone to just in the last five days is a testament to that. You know, your skin looks great. By the way, <laughs> um, the pores are wide open. I agree with you. I think that um, variety is the spice, man, but not in the Dune sense. It's it really is. It keeps things mixed up a little bit. And it, I think I come to the show very refreshed by what I've been watching over the last two months mm-hmm. and excited to see what they have cooked up for these for these characters. And I just think that the promise of like just the just the level of bants going on between Hiddleston and mm-hmm. Owen Wilson is like enough of a draw for me. I've also been actively following uh the writer of the show, Michael Waldron's uh 
we'll, I guess we'll call it screenwriter bullshit. Director bullshit is one of our favorite favorite trends to watch after. And Michael Waldron is going for he's like Simone Bilesing right now. He's pulling off moves <laughs> that I don't know that we've ever seen anyone do. Just recently in Vanity Fair, he compared or he said he, the the scripts for Loki were influenced by Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Catch me if you can before Sunrise and Blade Runner. There it is. <laughs> Michael Waldron, come on the watch. <laughs> I mean, I hope so, man. Um, do you think that people actually like, do they ask these guys, like when you were doing Briar Patch stuff, were people like, what right. were your influences? Like, do, yes. do people like look for that because it's such an easy like headline? Yes. And, um, and if you could do it again, would you have changed your influences for Briar Patch? I would have just asked Michael Waldron for advice because he's nailing it. He's crushing the game. You know, this might be, I don't know if this is a helpful analogy because it might make it a little less it might be even more obscure, I guess. But there was a period a while, you know, now a bunch of years ago when I would, in addition to, and you did this as well, I'm sure, um, you know, writing record reviews or features or whatever we were doing when we were freelance, record companies would sometimes ask you to write a bio for an artist that would go with the press packet. And your name wouldn't be on it, but you get paid and you'd interview the artist and then, you know, you'd wax poetic about the new let's say the three subsequent death cap for cutie albums, just hypothetically say someone pr- anonymously was, did that. I was pretty good at those. Yes. And one thing and I, I enjoyed doing it because I enjoyed talking to the artists and sort of helping shape what would be communicated. But one thing I learned early on is I would be talking to the songwriter or whatever, and he or she would say something. And then often they'd be like, no, no, you know what? Can you not use that? And I'd say, why? And they'd say, because I don't want to answer questions about that for the next two years. Mm -hmm. And then I started noticing and it was true. And this is not a dig at critics either because it's a thankless job and there's a lot of content, but generally, okay. I, I, I I say this with all humility, but your boy's rabbit fur coat bio has been (laughs) repurposed and recirculated many times in Jenny Lewis, uh, coverage in the last 15 years so you because, feel like and I, all this people say is and that, that's the just the rosetta stone of all jenny lewis thought all well no discourse. but like but it is true like people need boundaries and they need um a, a box to put things in mm-hmm. to communicate it and then people often when they're looking to listen or view something look for the, the the limits of that box as well all of this is to say like at some point early on someone used the word like someone the word Tarantino-esque was associated with an early Briar Patch trailer. My show is not Tarantino-esque. I mean, there's someone in a pantsuit with a gun at one point, right? Yeah. Like, I, I don't pretend to mimic that style. I'm not trying to do that style. But, you know, 60% of the reviews say that. Right. Because I think that that seems to be a catch-all for a way of understanding it. And all that is to say, so Michael Waldron likes good stuff. And so best case scenario, he's signaling to people like us who also like good stuff that you might have a home here. Otherwise, it's just helping set the framework for the discussion. Wait, well, I'm going to say when and not if. You're, you're okay. lucky enough to, to have another television show on, um, on the air. I'd love to just be able to write that bio for you to give people oh the parameters. God. So I'm just like, please. I'm out there and I'm just like, you know, this was definitely um, influenced very much by... Uh, Notorious B.I.G.'s Life After Death, mm-hmm. the back of Captain Crunch cereal boxes and mm-hmm. whatever games were being offered. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, just, you're in my drafts <laughs> folder, clearly. The, the Chris, meteorology reports of John Belaris <laughs> and David Lynch. Chris, what were 
what was it your favorite bio that you ever ghost wrote? Oh, Rick Ross, for sure. Yeah. Rick Ross for, for was which? like, I was that Rick Ross, the Rick Ross bio that I wrote back in the day was practically like a St. Crispin's Day speech. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> I didn't Which see, record? Uh, or just the artist bio you wrote? I think it was for the first Def Jam album, if I remember Port, correctly. Port of Miami? Was that what it was? I think so. Yeah, I think it was the first Rick Ross. I think it was that Rick Ross record that was like, I was just like, there is a revolution coming. You know? <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Behind every great Rick Ross, there is a 29-year-old Chris Ryan. <laughs> Getting like $300 from Def Jam. <laughs> and be like, sweet. Thanks. Like, doing these, doing this work was, do you know the scene? I don't know if you've watched recently the Truly great, like greater than I even realized uh, Coen Brothers film Inside Lewin Davis. Uh-huh. But they they record the uh, Don't Send Me Into Outer Space, Mr. Kennedy song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then and then Lewin Davis is like, can I get a check? And they're like, oh, we got to go through your agent. And he's like, oh, I don't have time for that. And they're like, oh, if you just want to like sign this and give up all future royalties, we'll give you 200 bucks right now. And he's like, awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that was being a freelance writer in the early 2000s or maybe always but I know it's I seriously don't know like who owns any of that intellectual property luckily it's like much of it is barely digitized so it doesn't, that's true it doesn't really matter that's true I, do, you, do you think that like when it comes time to donate my papers to the community college in Trenton or whatever higher education school is like interested in me I'll be like now do you have all three Death Cab Atlantic album bios, because I really feel like I advanced the form. You know what I mean? That what I said about Narrow Stairs was so much more profound. I I kind of do want to do like a, an experiment to see like w- you and I both offering our, our collected uh-huh. papers up to various <laughs> institutions. <laughs> and like, I, wh- who, who's, what is the best college I could probably get my papers into, you think? God, I mean, Bates is having a moment. Like you Texas know I mean? A&M? You know, like, I don't no, even Texas know. Texas A&M is a renowned place for letters. <laughs> for agriculture. From my understanding, <laughs> and agriculture. But I feel like all, all writers want to give their papers to Texas institutions. And I'm not sure, is that just because Texas has a lot of space? Oh, you think because like physically the papers take up a lot of room? Mm-hmm. So you want to have like a, a <laughs> yeah, ranch for your papers? A lot of receipts. And, I wonder think, Chris, whether or not you- there, there's something to... Um, I, I honestly don't know. I, do you think that if you donate your papers to UT, you can claim Texas residency and then like not oh. have to pay state taxes? I, my, I, I don't know. I, I just, I'm already thinking about the fact that there are a couple years when you are kind of, it feels good to like outrun your alumni publications if they exist, whether it's your high school, if it has some sort of organization or your college. And you're like, I'm not going to, come on, I don't, Leave me alone. I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't care about what people who knew me then think. And then like a few years later and you've maybe done one thing in your life and you're begging them to please run a blurb. <laughs> and they're like, Work. did you go here? Are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> I mean, do you think like if you called Emerson right now, just cold called the alumni office and you were like, gentlemen, Chris Ryan, Christopher Ryan here, podcast host. Man of letters. We've been, we've been in this staring contest for too long, and I'll blink first. <laughs> I would like to make myself available. Right? Yeah, I don't know, man. Um, so what else can we talk about? There's Loki's coming, and I, I just when, thought I would... It's coming Wednesday, so we'll talk about it Thursday. Uh, yeah, we'll be talking about week, right? uh, Thursday night. We'll do our, our uh, usual Top Chef stuff, but we'll, we'll make uh, our reactions to the Loki first episode known. I'm, I'm personally incredibly interested to see how much Before Sunrise shows up mm-hmm. in, in the first episode, and I'll be, I'll be holding Michael Waldron accountable for that. Uh, that's, that's what we do here. Um, do you want to talk briefly about the No Sudden Move 
trailer before we we get into uh, discussing some of these shows. Yeah, Chris, remember in the classic film Boogie Nights when yes. the character of the Colonel says that he has he's a simple man with simple tastes, and there's two things that he really likes, <laughs> and one of them is lollipops. That's what I felt like when I watched this trailer. <laughs> like I know that we spend hours every month talking to each other, trying to make a case, a coherent case for art and culture and what moves us and what matters in the world. And that's cool. I'm glad we do it. But all I want is this. Yeah. It's really... Just an absurd amount of good actors making a, a noir movie. It, it's not complicated. Yeah. I just want Steven Soderbergh directing all of the actors doing something like heist-like. It's yes. just, it's so, it's so pure. Yeah. This trailer is so good. It makes me want to watch the movie so much and not just want to watch the movie with the way that I, I, I've said that about other trailers and everyone knows how often I actually watch the movies. This is different. This is not me saying I'm curious about checking it out. This is me communing with my future self about how much pleasure this is going to give me. Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah, you know what? There are, I've talked about this with Sean recently where it's like this, phenomenon of, of, of there's a certain kind of movie that gets released on Netflix or HBO Max or one of these streamers immediately and there's the, an underrated aspect of it is to be able to immediately start re-watching it. Um, we talked about that mostly when it had to do with Tenet, whether you bought Tenet as a as like a $20 purchase or whatever or whether you saw it for the first time in HBO Max, mm-hmm. but that you could actually start making it a rewatchable in the sense that, you know, if you really like the uh, the the Freeport heist in Tenet, you could just rewatch that scene two or three times. And if you mm-hmm. don't like some other section of that movie, you could kind of skip ahead a little bit. And that's obviously a really different, that's like a pretty unique phenomenon in like movie history that like these, like all like just released films become personal property rather than communal property. You know, like we're used to like, you have to go to the movie theater, you have to deal with whatever you're, circumstances you're dealing with at the theater. It's a good crowd. Mm-hmm. It's a bad crowd. It's like a good good screen, bad screen. You've got a parking space. You, you have to drive around in circles for 20 minutes, whatever it is. Like there is like obviously something that then you kind of give yourself over to that experience. And I think actually what's good about that is that I find myself way more open to average movies or or flawed movies in the theater than I do when I'm watching at home. When I'm watching at home and something is like, not setting the world on fire. Right. I find myself getting really with an itchy trigger finger in terms of like, if I'm watching on my laptop. You're in control. You can change your mind. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I I think that that's unfair to TV. I mean, we're going to talk about two new shows in a second. I think it's tough because I wish there was like a little bit more of a, um, it's just you and this screen and you're going to have to like reckon with what you're watching with TV because I, I will get very bored. Very easily, um, oh, sad, sadly it, enough. I mean, it is a, it's a profound point that's relevant to all of our engagement with culture these days because it's not just that I have a long history and, and a lot of memories of sitting in a theater trying to do the work to make something work for me. Yeah. Like I, you know, people have heard many times over the years, you know, my, my itchy trigger finger about pilots and it's very hard for me to like relax into the vibe and give in. Um, even when I've been wrong about having a negative reaction early in the theater, you kind of, you feel committed because you've committed all the parking money or popcorn money or whatever. And you're also just there. So mm-hmm. why not try to make the best of this? It's, it's something that I continue to think about also with music 
where the, 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 just the hours I spent in my life trying to like a CD that I spent $18 on. Yeah. Because that was the CD I bought and I wasn't buying another one. Um, now you can change your mind. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, harder as a viewer. And frankly, it's harder for creators too, because they're up against that. I, I really brought that up just to be like, I will, I could imagine myself like watching No Sudden Move like two and a half times in a weekend. Right. Yeah, it was a positive. Uh, but it is, it is sort of reasons. funny. Like you, what you're saying about the music, like I, I always remember I was working at a magazine called uh, Fit the Fader, which I'm, many people probably know what that is. And, and I was working with a guy, a great dude and a great DJ named Nick Catchdubs. We were sitting in the sort of bullpen area of this office and it was right when MP3 blogs really started to pop off and Nick had like a program where you could go to a page of an MP3 blog and it was basically a script in, in his browser or whatever, a, like a Firefox add-on or something that would just download all the MP3s that were on the page. So rather than like read the description and then download the MP3 and then open it and then he would just download them all, put them all in like a giant playlist and then just kind of skip through them and kind of, and that was like his way of like processing this stuff. I was like, and I was just like, A, that's genius because you just get so much stuff coming in. And Nick was a DJ and I think he was looking for lots of different stuff. But to me, I was like, I totally, <laughs> I think that was like the first glimpse I had of how we would go on to like consume culture for the next, however, you know, two decades where it's like, you basically have your hand over the skip button of life, <laughs> you know? <laughs> You know, one of my strongest memories uh, from the 90s was the day the Ghostface Killer album, his solo debut album, Iron Man, was released. Uh-huh. And uh, sophomore year of college, I remember I went to the store the day it came out. I was so excited. I bought the CD. I went and sat on the main green, put it in my disc man, and started listening. And the first notes of the album were like very slow jazz. Uh -huh. I was like, oh, okay. So this is what we're doing now. And I was like staring at the cover image of like, Ghostface and Raekwon and Capadonna like copping sneakers, you know? And I was like, this is really a vibe change, but I'm here for it. And then the song went on and there was like some funky bass came on and then there was some crooning. And I was like, you know, normally I would, I bet in the future I'll be skipping this intro track. It's probably noted Wu-Tang vocalist Blue Raspberry or something, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> you know? But I was like, I bet it's really going to pop off yeah. track two. Cause I know also I, you know, like Daytona 500's coming. Like I, I'll get there, but I owe this to Ghostface that I'm going to listen to his artistic vision. And I think I listened to probably 45 minutes of it before I realized that the CD that had been wrapped in the case was the new Maxwell album <laughs> due to a mistake at the processing plant. But I was there. I yeah. was going with Tony Starks on this journey. You know what I mean? So that's, I don't, I'm not that guy anymore. I would, I would not do that. But all of this is to say... The Soderbergh movie looks so good. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even mentioned it's. It stars Don Cheadle, Benicio del Toro, uh, Kieran Culkin, Amy Simons, uh, Brendan Fraser, John Hamm. Like it's it's got this huge David Harbor, uh, like you know, like this huge cast. It looks like it's uh, set in post-war Detroit. I think is the setup. Ed Solomon wrote it with mm -hmm. uh, uh, Soderbergh, or Soderbergh, I think Ed Solomon did the script. And yeah, I mean, I you know, I think that there is. Obviously, it's been a very prolific time for Soderbergh in his post-retirement re mm -hmm. retrenching. And he's done... I, I would love to like sit down and re-watch all the movies he's made since he was like, actually, I'm coming back. Or mm -hmm. actually, I've figured out how to make movies the way I was, want. Was because, Logan Lucky the first official well, movie back? Logan Lucky was the one that he was going to use to like re you know, reimagine the distribution model of movies. Right. But, you know, I mean, you know, High Flying Bird and Let Them All Talk mm -hmm. and... 
I, he's done a, a bunch of films and I don't know that any of them have like popped where it's like, oh, well, this is either an awards contender or become hugely popular or has become something that people are talking about constantly. I mean, I really loved Let Them All Talk, especially. Um, but this one feels like the the most mainstream swing right. he's made since since Logan Lucky, which I think was probably hamstrung almost by the idea of like, it's Ocean's Eleven, but a NASCAR race was like too too overwhelming of a proposition. And people were not sure how to deal with like, you, you know, what they actually got. I, I think that we champion him not only because he is like peerless as a filmmaker and just, it's just so thrilling and he can go genre to genre and, you know, he just loves actors and he loves making movies and it's just it's just fun on a kinetic level to watch his movies and there's always a high level of quality but also he seems to have made i mean he, he he's so thoughtful about everything and makes these takes big chances takes big takes big risks but i think one of his big decisions was he looked at the movie landscape and he was like it's either or right like it's it's either a disney blockbuster or it's what i mean what's the even the alternative to be released in theaters and he said, no, mm -hmm. I'm just going to keep making movies and there's going to be an audience for them. It's just the, the framing for them might change and some might be in theaters and some might not be. And he was ahead of the curve in that regard. And this, in this movie, you know, as, as this things are opening up in the summer, we're starting to see more like hybrid release strategies and some things are going to be in both and some things are going to be on, in theaters a little and for a much, little. Much to the chagrin of filmmakers in some cases. Absolutely. Like, you know, like Quiet Place is in theaters now and I believe goes to Paramount in what, what probably like thirty days or something like that. It's I think it was a forty five day theater. But it's window. doing well in theaters. It's doing quite well in theaters. So, so, so. Conjuring is in theaters and I think is the number one movie in the box office, but is also currently on HBO Max. Infinite, which is like a Mark Wahlberg movie with the Antoine Fuqua directed, is going straight to Paramount Plus. So like, there's a variety of different things. And, and this Soderbergh movie, though, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong about this. I think it's part of an exclusive deal that he signed with HBO Max. So this was always going to be uh, yes. streaming. Yes, this is this is part of the let them all talk deal, like the couple of things he did there. By the way, Chris, have you returned to the movie theaters? I haven't yet. You, you know, I I thought about it this weekend. I I hate to say it, I actually don't know where I would go to the movies. Like I have, I don't have like a second favorite theater here after the ArcLight. After the ArcLight, so yeah, I kind of was just like, uh, you know, I thought about going to see Quiet Place, and and I and I didn't get out there yet. I am the only member of my family not to go to a movie theater. Oh really? My the the three members of the family who aren't me returned. They went to Conjuring. The devil made me do it. They went. They went to uh, Spirit Untamed, uh -huh. which is I don't think people know this. I told Sean Fantasy this over the weekend because I was worried he was going to ignore it. It is actually uh, Godfather canon. It is a prequel to the first movie about the horse. <laughs> um, and Khartoum. That's the name of the horse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so check it out. I mean, it's 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 actually surprisingly not dark for what happens later, but yeah, it took the it took the big screen adaptation of the beloved animated series Spirit about a horse uh, to to bring them back to the theater. The movie is actually called Spirit Untamed, uh -huh. which really makes me think of the series in a different light because I think I didn't know the series was tamed. You know what I mean? But like now, finally, they can tell the full story, and like Walton Goggins' voice gets involved, so you know. Oh wow! You know it's legit. Um, Anyway, just to report from the front lines, or actually, I report from the back lines. <laughs> I, I don't go anywhere near the front. Uh, a very pleasant experience and wonderful to be back. Very well managed. Uh, very, you know, people are spaced out and <laughs> spaced out in the sense that there were only 
three other people there. <laughs> so they they were very happy to be back in theaters. And they'll be making an appearance on the big picture, I'm sure. I can't wait to get, to get back there. I, it's, it's no, uh, I've got full confidence in in the, the J&J running through my bot. I just haven't found, found the right home for my, my theater going yet. Uh, why don't we take a quick break? And you just shouted we'll... out your antibods. Yeah, man. It's amazing <laughs> shit. They just pumped us full of it. And like, we don't get COVID. It's amazing. Uh, let's uh, take a quick break. And then when we come back, uh, we'll talk about Sweet Tooth and we'll talk about We Are Lady Parts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, we're speeding through this episode of The Watch because Kaya's got better things to produce. Um, <laughs> That's always the case, though, that for is being true. honest. Uh, Andy, what do you want to start with? Sweet Tooth or We Are Lady Parts? Let's, let's talk Sweet Tooth. Okay. Uh, this is a new show directed by Jim Mickle, who's a filmmaker I got a lot of time for. He made one of my favorite horror, but I think like almost like horror action films of the last like 20 or so years in, in, in a film called Stakeland. I've really enjoyed his stuff over the years. I think he is a, I, I, I don't just think I know he is a Philly guy. So uh, he obviously gets a lot of points around this neighborhood of podcasting. And this is a show that, um, man, you know, it's obviously drawn from I think a, a real sweet spot probably for anyone around our age where I think it's it's heavily leaning on Amblin vibes of the 80s. You know, it's got uh, both the wonder and terrifying nature of childhood crammed into this dystopian view Mm -hmm. of uh, a post-pandemic, a post-viral outbreak world where people are getting sick, people are dying. And out of this virus comes a new breed of of being called hybrids, which is essentially like a animal-human hybrid being. So the child who's like the sort of uh, the main character of the show is is Gus, and he is a deer person hybrid. And mm-hmm. we follow him along for the first couple of years of his life in the wake of this pandemic, in the wake of this uh, of 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 this of this huge outbreak. And he's living alone in a forest with his dad, played by Will Forte. 
And uh, we just sort of get, it's a lot of world building this first episode. And I guess when I got to the end of the first episode, I almost regretted the fact that we hadn't watched like maybe a chunk of these. I don't know necessarily this is a show Mm -hmm. that we're going to hit like every episode on, but I I feel like, you know, you talked a little bit about pilotitis. This was a really, really, really well-made piece of television. Like, yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think we should start there just because, and and as Chris said, maybe we'll circle back. We really only watched the first one, just kind of get a taste for it and, and be able to talk about it a little bit. I think it's a, before we even get into its merits, it's a pretty interesting case study in how TV gets made these days because I think there's a school of thought, you know, it's trickle-down Marvel economics or whatever, that to make anything, you need to have killer IP and you need to have a giant world, mm-hmm. right? And so comic book series are getting strip-mined for parts and the very well-regarded comic creator Jeff Lemire made this series, I think, for a, for, a, for DC, but it's creator-owned and it's for one of their, it's not their Superman line of comics, basically. No, but it's, and, a, and, and as you mentioned, it is a Warner, it is a Warner show. So I thought it I is thought a Warner studio. Noteworthy yeah. that it was not, yeah. And the Downies, Team Downey, which is Robert Downey Jr. and his wife, Susan, who are producing partners, uh, got behind this mm-hmm. and got it through Warner Brothers. And then it was on Hulu. This was, the pilot was made for Hulu. And then there was the Disney takeover. And then I think just the sheer star power involved in it, the Downies and everything got the show muscled onto Netflix. Also, I shouldn't say muscled. I mean, Netflix is very happy to pick up something that where a lot of money has already been spent. Mm -hmm. uh, And a lot of money was clearly spent on the show. And then to your point, Chris, like just doing this again, and this meaning setting up a world, giant stakes, changing the world, wrecking the world. I mean, that's, that's tough. And we see a ton of it. And I think my first feeling about this show was generally positive, not because I am checking for more dystopia um, or certainly more virus content. We're good mm-hmm. uh, IRL right now, but it was different enough to make me feel things again, even when the beats of the beat sheet of this are, you know, I don't want to say predictable, I'll say tried and true. Mm-hmm. I, there's not necessarily a better way to introduce Nonsoanosi's character, big man, then have him rescue Gus from his first plight, you know, or his first encounter with danger. I didn't even know who the character was, but I knew he was coming in that moment. Sure. But that's a familiar beat and that's fine. But what I really liked about it was to go back to what you started with, Jim Mickle, filmmaker, showrunner. Um, last week I said he he created the show Happen Leonard, which is was very underrated and underseen genre show. And I, I think it was on IFC. He brings, first of all, the direction is beautiful, but the production design is beautiful and thoughtful. And there's just a color palette. I know this sounds very basic, but there's a color palette at work here that I found very pleasing. Yeah. You know, the sort of soft pastels and woodland hues and the dreamlike aesthetics of the hospital when the hybrids arrive and the treatment of the hybrid moment in the nursery as a thing of off kilter beauty and wonder. Mm-hmm. and not horror, it it seems like a small shift on the great mixing board of life, but it was enough to, to, to draw me in instead of pushing me away. And sometimes that's kind of all it takes. I completely agree with you. I also, I think, you know, I've talked a lot about um, the perspective that the show is being told through uh, a lot recently, especially with Mare, where I'm like, I think I reacted differently than maybe a lot of people who watched Mare, where I was like, I feel like this show did kind of start jumping around from POV characters from from being mostly mayor to 
almost a true ensemble and and multiple mm-hmm. POVs. And that was like what it was for that show. For this one, at least for this first episode, I thought that they did a really good job of filtering the entire download of information that you're getting about what's happening in this world after they do the initial sort of um, kind of preamble with the doctor. And when they get to to Gus out in the woods, everything that he's learning, he's essentially learning through the prism of what his dad is telling him in the kind of, you know, childlike way that he's interpreting it, which is mostly through... Um, you know, these kind of like golden rules that he needs to follow and why he needs to follow them. And then there's this idea of like what a kid can handle at a certain age in terms of the information that Will Forte's character is willing to share with him and whether he can trust his kid to not put himself in danger. And I often will find myself slightly frustrated by things like that, where I'm just like, obviously there's like a lot of this world outside the literal fence of this scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and I and I kind of feel like, you may not trust the kid to know it, but I would like to know it. It's, you know, it's it's not like a mystery to me. I obviously there are going to be roving bands of of hunters who are looking for these kids. There's there's clearly going to be a lot of mixed feelings about what they what they brought into the world. I just want to kind of like get into that as fast as possible. So I found myself a little impatient with that. But that being said, they did it about as well as you can do it. Where it's just like this first episode is pretty idyllic. It's supposed to be this Eden that they've found in this forest mm-hmm. that then gets corrupted by outside forces. And then um, I think Gus is saved at the end, like you said. Um, I, so did you get to the end of this episode? And I think I always think about this specifically with Netflix since what they do is engineered to get you to just sit there and stay mm-hmm. and watch the next one. Were you like, were there enough time? I would have just like knocked out another one. Were you like, I get it, but it's not necessarily something I'm going to like dial up right after another. I mean, it, it is a, Absolute, it's a premise pilot. I mean, the pilot is not representative of the show. The pilot is getting us to the precipice of the show starting. So it is a very unnatural place, I guess, for us to have ended our first watch for coverage. Um, I will say that, and this is on brand, I would like to watch another one, but Mm -hmm. I did not want to watch another one immediately because this was, you know, this was a solid 58 minutes. But in this... For as much as a, a, a post-apocalyptic show is defined by the big strokes and the helicopters colliding in midair and the sense of doom and disaster and references to the internet going down and horrors, it is also a series of small decisions for us to care about it. And so the casting of the kid was really strong. It's hard to do. And Will Forte gave a great performance. But the biggest one for me was casting, I mentioned him already, Nanso Anozi, who people might remember from his role as the character I called Duck Sauce. <laughs> Uh, in early Game of Thrones, sure. he had many names it, <laughs> and he got locked in a vault, but he uh-huh. had a lot of like, he had a lot of Daenerys scenes and I thought he was great. He's a British stage actor and he brings such gravity and charisma to the role that I was excited when he arrived and I was excited to see what the show had to say and had to do with him taking us through it as our guide into the world. You know, there's, it's funny I'll never ding the show for this. I'm glad it did it. But there's, you know, there, there's a, there's an element of tweeness to it. Yeah. Like, I, I, I feel like Netflix is missing an opportunity by not uh, offering up, like, you know, the, the the Sweet Tooth Papa's Cardigan collection. Like, that should be at Uniqlo this weekend or something. Like, yeah. the beautiful cardigans that he seems to effortlessly grow into even while he's growing. Like, we saw that we see the footage of Will Forte packing for raising a baby alone in Yellowstone. And I guess somewhere in those bags were like six 
maple syrup bottles <laughs> and a thousand candles and a duck, I guess. But, you know, it, it it's fine. It is with the narrator and everything. I mean, the show is a fairy tale. Yeah, James and Brolin, I think James Brolin narrates it. And I think that choosing to tell the story, we'll see what happens. Obviously, this is one episode, but choosing to tell it through the prism of a fairy tale as opposed to a uh, Greek tragedy or whatever mm-hmm. else has been the operative principle for comic book shows or post-apocalyptic shows that that sometimes that's enough sometimes yeah. that's enough to keep to keep people intrigued i'm definitely going to check it out if only also because one of my like pet hobbies is watching the differences between uh first episodes which are like you said usually mission statements they're pilots they're usually i think now with netflix i, I don't know they bought this after it already been made or whatever but like with netflix typically they buy something that with a series order so that when you go into shooting, I would imagine the first episode is not necessarily any different than the sixth episode it, in terms of its production. And you definitely make that decision when your lead is a child. I'm very curious if, <laughs> yeah. if Sweet Tooth is a little bit more of a grizzled tooth by the time we <laughs> resume the series. You know what I mean? Like if he kind of has a beard to if, go along if with If Sweet his... Tooth is like this kid I used to play baseball with who like was the dude who when we showed up for like 12 to 15 league he had like a light mustache you remember the kid and it popped to like six foot two and we were all like oh shit do you remember who was the kid danny with danny almonte or something the kid who like won the little league world series and they were like low key he's 19 well this kid eric he was like i he i think he was the age that he said he was but like it was basically like he had to we had to move him out of our league because he was the only guy throwing 70 and like these, most of the kids there were still playing with dolls, and he was just like <laughs> throwing ungodly breaking shit, you know, like it's stuff. Yeah, um, I think that's possible. Chris, last question. I and I, I assume people who are listening to this have watched the pilot, or they understand how shows like this work. So I, I, I this is a little bit of a spoiler for the episode we watched. I won't use specifics, but I just want to know, Chris, like. Since you're already talking, this whole episode has been really digging in the memory vaults in a nice way. So this is consistent, Chris. You are. You're nine, ten years old, like Sweet Tooth. You're you're playing Little League. Yeah. If you were confronted with a situation like Sweet Tooth, where a beloved figure in your life has expired suddenly, um, <laughs> how do you feel like you would handle the adult corpse removal? And would you have done it as gracefully? Oh, as I would, our young see. Boy? I thought you were asking like, how would I memorialize him? Which would di- my my number oh. one answer would just be big pun mural. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously, but I, w- I would do like the full Elliot Smith mural <laughs> that they have uh-huh. in Silver Lake. <laughs> no matter who died, I would just make right. it Elliot Smith. And you wouldn't like <laughs> drag and bury the body. You'd be too busy just like lighters up, painting. That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, That's right. So we really liked Sweet Tooth. I will try to check out some more of it. Uh, I loved We Are Lady Parts. This is a show on Peacock. Uh, it went up this weekend. It's uh, originally on. Um, I think it was on Channel Four. In it's England. actually it's a copro. It's it a is co-pro? a Peacock and Channel Four copro, so it's it's simultaneous. So they put up the the pilot. Actually, apparently aired in 2018 on Channel Four. It it comes from a writer director named Nita Manzor, and it's uh, this show. You know, I, my my Peacock TV is is highly algorithmic. So like when you go to my, like when I went to my Peacock page to find it, it was like it was not on the front page. So I hope people are looking for it. I saw that it got some some love over on social media. And I think Allison wrote about it. It's it look like this is first of all, like I, I hate to like give any like extra points to things for its brevity, but this is a six episode season. The episodes are like 25 minutes long. The, this is also a show that moves at the tempo 
of the music it celebrates. It's about um, a group of women in young women in England who are forming a punk band as a sort of uh, I don't know reaction of to or rejection of some of their like kind of their current situation. You know what I mean? I guess is the best way to put it. Largely made up of young Muslim women, and uh, it's just like if you like freaks and geeks, if you like Dairy Girls, if you like you know basically like shows about young people with tons of attitude, you will love this show. And I I watched it last night. I was I just was in stitches about the first episode. It's really well made. It's really well directed. The rhythm of it, as Chris was saying, the tempo, the world that we're in. And it's it's just kind of, for me, it was a fun and celebratory example of our global TV moment. And, you know, look, Chris and I are about to record our our last special podcast episode about the 50-episode French drama series, Le Bureau. Drama around the world is great, but there is something that is really fun and snacky about getting these uh, bursts of comedy from other countries, other cultures, certainly other accents uh, that I find really exciting and refreshing. It's not just that it's easier to digest. There's something that's just more bracing about it. Mm -hmm. Like you feel transported and you feel excited to be along with the journey, uh, along with the journey of Nita Manzor, who wrote and directed the show and just what she brings to it from her own background, which is very different than mine. And I was pretty thrilled. It's a it's a gem, and it's one of those things that that it's one of the advantages of our massive buffet of the moment. You know, something like this can just appear and hopefully get a little traction because it deserves to be seen. Yeah, it's. I don't really. We always struggle to kind of t- to remark upon like what makes comedy good. After I just thought it was really funny. I just think that when we don't communicate it, we demonstrate it. No, That's but like I, I've been thinking a ton about about pacing and tempo recently, just because I think when you have, you know, after. It's not necessarily that there's a ton to watch, but there is a ton you could watch. And so much of what I loved about Lady Parts was the immediacy of it and the way that they make the most out of such like a short runtime of mm-hmm. a show. And like to be able to cram that many ideas, that many jokes, it's it's got like some some 30 rock-esque joke writing going in there where there's like three to five like different bits going on inside of a conversation and there's some visual gags and there's voiceover gags it's just like it's relentless and it it's, it very much mirrors the the music that these the, the women are playing and the and the rhythm um is definitely recognizable to people who like Edgar Wright movies for example like it's it's very which doesn't say Edgar Wright invented it but there's a vibe that I think is one generation clicked down from us that's a little more like super NES, like quick cutting music, throw it all in. And I love it. I mean, there, there's a moment I laughed the hardest in the first episode with just some Muppets appear yeah. for no good reason. And yeah. I won't even get into it, but like that, that was when I knew I was, I was, I was in for the ride. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't have to belabor that. I and mean, like, we can just wrap it up there. We, we kind of covered those two shows. Uh, we will be back on Thursday night, Friday morning, talking about Loki and Top Chef. Uh, and also, I think Wednesday, we will get up our final Bureau episode. Which yeah, also we better. Features... Oh, go ahead, Chris. I well, it also features a lo- an hour-long conversation with, with the creator of the show, Eric Rashawn. I'm very excited about that. And we should probably end because we need to schedule when we're going to talk about season five. got to do a little podcasting business. That's right. And as previously discussed, Kaya is a woman. Kaya's got go. places to be. Yeah, Kaya. Kaya's and we got... don't blame her. We, are, <laughs> we, we generally feel that we've been holding her back. Like, that's actually true. So, uh, thank you, As Kaya. always, we are produced by Kaya McMullen. We will be back with you guys on Thursday night. Talk to you soon. Bye.